some words from the letter to the church at Ephesus. Try your best to let God's spirit keep your hearts united. Do this by living at peace. All of you are part of the same body. There is only one spirit of God, just as you were given one hope when we were chosen to be God's people. We have only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one God who is the Father of all people. Not only is God above all others, but he works by using all of us. And he lives in all of us. Let's come to God in prayer as we pray together. Holy God, one in three, Father, Son and Spirit in perfect relationship, hear us as we gather in Christ's name to offer our praises and our prayers. On this new morning, we thank you for the gift of life itself, for the way that our bodies are made, with each part important for our well-being. On this new morning, we thank you for the gift of community, for those with whom we can meet together, strangers and friends, neighbours and family. On this new morning, we thank you for the gift of faith, for the church throughout the ages that has passed on the stories of Jesus and shown us your love in action. On this new morning, we pause in silence for a moment to thank you for the ways that you have blessed each of us that no one else knows about. Gracious God, source of wisdom, forgiveness and love, we know that we don't always live as we should, but sometimes we choose foolishly and that sometimes we choose not to listen to your voice. On this morning, we are sorry for the wrong things we have said or done, for the things that have hurt or saddened other people. On this morning, we are sorry for the opportunities we missed, the times we could have spoken a word of encouragement or helped someone in need, but didn't. On this morning, we are sorry for the times we've ignored you, the times we were too busy or too lazy to listen, to look, to pray or to act. On this morning, we pause in silence for a moment to admit to ourselves and to you the ways that we've let you down that no one else knows about. Gentle God, we thank you that when we are sorry, you not only forgive us, but treat us as if we had never hurt or saddened you. Please help us to live more faithfully and more lovingly as you lead us onwards. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
uh, two readings this morning. Uh, Firstly, from the Gospel according to Matthew at chapter 28 and verse 18. Let us listen for the word of God. Jesus drew near and said to them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. And then in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, at chapter 3 and beginning at verse 25. Now that the time for faith is here, the law is no longer in charge of us. It is through faith that all of you are God's children in union with Christ Jesus. You are baptized into union with Christ, with the new life of Christ himself. Now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free people, Between men and women, you are all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are the descendants of Abraham and will receive what God has promised. might be wondering why I've chosen to have a couple of weeks looking at aspects of Baptist identity. Something that some people will hold very lightly, other people have never known anything else, and some people will think, well, actually, we're not really about denominations, it's about being Christians, about following Jesus, so why bother? Well, the short answer is that somebody asked me to do it, and the slightly longer answer is that having been asked, I thought actually perhaps it's a good idea because some people maybe have never stopped to think about what it is that is distinctive about Baptists or maybe it's such a long time since we've thought about it that we've kind of adjusted it to suit our own convenience, our own preferences. Today it's slightly unusual. I used to say in my old church when I did something like this, you're getting a two-for-one offer or a three-for-two offer or, as it is today, a four-for-one offer. Not one long sermon, four short reflections with a bit of singing in between. Um, Just a word about the hymn that we will be using. It's unpublished. It was written by a guy called Martin Leckerbush, who I've never met, but he grew up three miles from where I used to be. And it was a new hymn that he had written at the time I was looking for something for Margaret's baptism. I wanted something suitable for a believer's baptism of a 70-year-old who was quite traditional and really didn't want to sing happy, clappy things. And through my blog, he offered this hymn. So it's only been used, to my knowledge, at one baptism service, 
and we are the, only the second church using it with permission, so quite special really. Um, I hope you enjoy it when we get that far. So, baptism and Baptists. There is one thing that almost all Christian denominations agree on, and that is that baptism is the normal and essential sign of entry into the church, where church has a capital C and refers to the international and interdenominational organisational form of Christian witness. That is roughly what it says in Called to be One, which is the church's together in Great Britain and Ireland document on baptism, ministry and communion. One of the most misunderstood and often misappropriated aspects of Baptist views on baptism, in my experience, is that associated with what is called open membership, a practice which is pretty typical in England, but relatively rare in Scotland. We are one of the less common Scottish Baptist churches that we have open membership. Open membership basically recognises that people may come along to join a Baptist church whose entry into the universal church might have been in another tradition, a tradition that practised infant baptism rather than believers' baptism. And basically, it's a sign that the church is bigger than any of us and that none of us have got it all absolutely spot on, that as an act of hospitality, as an act of humility, people are accepted into membership of Baptist churches whose story so far is different. It's always interesting when you talk to people who haven't stopped to think about it, what they think about that. Because one of the misunderstandings is that Baptists don't take baptism very seriously then, do they? And actually, you don't need to be baptised after all to be in a Baptist church. One of those strange things about us. My suspicion is, at the time that our church was formed, in the late 1800s, that act of hospitality, that recognition that people living in this area would have grown up in churches of another tradition, was what motivated the decision for open membership. They would not have imagined a time when most people would never have been in a church. Back in the late 1800s, pretty well everybody went to church, like it or not. And if you went to an infant baptizing church, you were baptized as an infant. And if you went to a believing baptized church, then eventually that happened. The idea of people never ever being baptized as a sign of their formal entry into the church would have been, I suspect, beyond their ken. One of the distinctives about Baptists is our commitment to the baptism of believers. Baptism of those who are able to profess for themselves a sense of commitment to Christian discipleship. And that is enshrined in the Baptist Declaration of Principle of the Baptist Union of Great Britain and the Baptist Union of Scotland, which you have on a sheet, so you can take them away if you wish to look at them later. It's one of those interesting things about Baptists is we don't do creeds. We don't do sign on the dotted line, I believe this. What holds us together within our unions and indeed across the world is about three statements. A statement on our belief in Jesus as Saviour, 
a statement on baptism and a statement on mission. The universally held Christian Trinitarian formula is there in writing. As Baptists, we baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, in our Declaration of Principle, we state that baptism is by full immersion. Actually, we kind of have a get-out clause for people who are not physically able to be dunked, and they are allowed to pour water over their heads. But our normal mode is by full immersion. And the distinctive is that it's a personal expression of faith. Now, I'm sure you've all heard that lots and lots of times before. It's not new. And you will all have your own views on baptism, which might well differ from mine, and that's fine. But maybe it's useful for us to take some time and think about it. And if you are one of the people in this church, and I know there are many, who have not been baptised as a believer, irrespective of what has happened before, how do you feel about this Baptist view on baptism? And why is that? Is it a kind of foot stamping, well, I've always thought this and there? Is it, as it was with me, actually, do you know what, I'm scared of water? Or is it something else? Why we think what we think is sometimes as important as the essence of what we think. And one of the things I'd like to encourage everybody to do over the weeks ahead is to think. Why do I think as I do about baptism? The first reading we heard this morning is the so-called Great Commission of Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Something that links together the making of disciples, teaching people about Jesus, teaching them what Jesus has taught us, with baptism in a Trinitarian formula, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we read on into Acts, and you've got a list on the other side of your sheet of paper of various passages you might want to look at at some point, you would find that baptism normally followed on, if we have it literally as described, immediately a person was converted. There was no baptismal class. There was no waiting for a special Sunday to come along. In fact, there were even accounts of people saying, look, there's some water, should we go over there and do it? And they did. And yet, if we look at baptism as it's practised now in the churches, and as it has been practised throughout history since the church became an organisation, that connection between conversion and baptism is at best distorted. So this next section is really kind of a didactic bit, an educational bit, about baptism in different styles and traditions. I'm going to start by talking about infant baptism. Infant baptism is linked to a theology that ties salvation with baptism. The idea which is unbiblical to the best of my understanding, that if you are not baptised, you can't go to heaven. To me, that must be unbiblical, because the good thief didn't jump down off the cross and get baptised and jump back up again. Jesus said to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. There was no sense that baptism was directly connected to salvation. 
But that view still pervades. And interestingly, I had a conversation just before the service about emergency baptism in hospitals where very sick or dying babies are baptised by the hospital chaplain usually, but in the rites of the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church and other infant baptising traditions, there is a kind of get-out clause that says in an emergency anybody can do it because there might not be time to get the holy person to do it and if it doesn't get done, I mean, that's not what it says, but that's kind of what it boils down to. And I know I'm kind of exaggerating, but this idea that if a baby is not done, God won't take it, that's unbiblical as far as I can understand. But actually, some of the stuff around baptism in churches other than Baptist churches grew up as the church was getting bigger and bigger, and it was a practical thing. By about the 4th century, the church was quite well organised. Remember, Baptists hadn't been invented yet, so this is our history as well as other traditions' history. And bishops were the only people who were allowed to undertake a baptism. And a bishop might have 100 or more churches that he was responsible for. And he would go round, a bit like Queen Elizabeth I, on royal progression from church to church, And as he got there, he would do the baptisms. And there might be dozens of them, because they'd been waiting perhaps a year or two years for him to come. And that became a problem, because people might die while they were waiting. And that wasn't really very good. So vicars were appointed. Vicar means vicarious, somebody who's a stand-in. Deputies, if you like. Deputy bishops were allowed to form the baptism, except... They couldn't lay on hands for reception of the Holy Spirit. That had to be done by a bishop. And that's where the confirmation right in a lot of churches comes from. The idea that baptism isn't actually finished until the bishop, that's the right way around, puts his hands on you the right way around. It has to be the right hand touching you and the left hand on top. Don't ask me why, that's the way it is. But that's the origin of confirmation, that baptism was the way into the church But the poor old bishop couldn't get around everybody, so the vicars could do the first bit, and the bishop, when he got to you, would finish it off. And this was one of the things that kind of bothered those who became Baptists. They didn't think that this had a lot of sense from a theological point of view. They thought, actually, baptism in the Bible is of people who professed faith in Jesus, and all this... (coughs) what they perceived as hocus-pocus wasn't very helpful. Baptists have our view on baptism of believers, of people who can make a profession of faith. But that has a difficulty for us, or a number of difficulties for us. It's fine if people who've never been into church come into faith at a later on point as an adult, And Margaret, who I spoke about, is that kind of person. She hadn't had much church experience. She came in, decided she believed this stuff and wanted to be baptised. But what about our children and our young people who've been sort of soaked in our tradition all the way? How do we affirm them? How do we nurture them and give them the freedom to say for themselves, you know what, actually, yes, I believe this stuff, And I would like to take that next step of being baptised. 
without either reducing it to a kind of process that you go through, or being pushy, or getting it wrong, or ending up saying, well, do you know what, it doesn't matter anyway. It's not easy. But we say it's important. We have the word Baptist in our title because we think baptism is important. But we have to be careful that we don't neglect children. It's one of the uh, ways that other churches criticise us. So if you don't baptise babies, you don't love them then. You don't think they matter to God. And, you know, there are some valid bits in that criticism. The word baptism, I've got some Greek scholars over there, so they will know. It's an, an ordinary word in Greek. To baptise something is to dunk it. I used to go into school and talk about baptism, and I used to say, do you know what? When you go home, you can say to mum, I'm going to baptise my biscuit in my drink. And that was, had some interesting results. But it meant to be totally immersed <coughs> and was often used in the dying, D-Y-E, dying, industry, to describe what happened when you put fabric into a coloured dye and pulled it out a different colour. And that's one of the things that Baptists use as an image in thinking about baptism. That actually we're still us. In one sense, we haven't changed any more than the fabric's changed. But by going down into the water and being plunged into it, symbolically, we are plunged into Christ, died by Christ, and that we come up a different colour. Now, there are people here who, like me, have been baptised twice. Shock, horror. I was done as a baby. I was eventually done as a believer. There are people who have only been baptised as babies. There are people who have only been baptised as believers. And there may be people who haven't been baptised at all. It's worth thinking where all that fits in your story of faith. What do you think baptism is about? Who do you think should be baptised? And if you are somebody who hasn't been baptised as a believer, why is that for you? What is it that stands between you and thinking about that? Or between you and doing that? Because after all, we all choose to be part of a church called Baptist. We embrace Christ's death and resurrection, so the song says. When Baptists talk about baptism, we often stress this image of the baptistry as being like a grave. And the traditional practice of lowering the candidate backwards as a symbol of death and burial to all that has been unhealthy in their life before they rise to a new life in Christ. We also might use symbols of washing or the symbol of birth, but the idea of dying to sin and rising to new life is a powerful one, and it's one that goes through the New Testament a lot. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul likens baptism to participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a kind of a mystery language that our old nature, with its liability to sin, 
and its vulnerability to temptation dies. And a new nature, impregnated with Christ-likeness, emerges as this person, now very wet, rises from the water. <coughs> Symbolically, then, baptism can be seen as a sharing in Christ's passion. But actually, I think it's much more than that. As people of resurrection, there is ongoing work to be done. Because we all know that baptism doesn't suddenly make us perfect. I still do plenty of things that aren't that great. I still wrestle with temptations and problems. I'm not yet perfect, as you've undoubtedly noticed. And any Baptist minister and any Baptist church worth their salt knows the importance of watching over people who have recently been baptised. There is a risk recognised by ministers, anyway, of the baptismal blooms. So after this great high, when everybody is celebrating, actually it can be a bit low and not so good. There is well-documented evidence that says an awful lot of people who are baptised have left the church within two years. Baptism is not a beginning And it's not an end, it's actually a stage on our journey with Jesus. But it is a formal entry point into the organisation called the Church, an official, public and symbolic act. And that's quite mysterious, because that connects us to each other, and it connects us to the Christians who went before us in in a special kind of way. And it brings with it a responsibility for all of us to look out for each other. It's not like your baptism, your problem. It's your baptism, our delight. We share in this together. And as we grow together as followers of Jesus, we are part of that body of Christ, continuing his work. Jesus said to his followers, I've got all authority, and I say to you, go and tell people about me. Go and baptise them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And after baptism, we are drawn into that commission. We are part of that. So just a few questions at the end of this section. Have we, I wonder, any of us ever fallen into the trap of seeing baptism as a last tick box? before we just relax and sit in the chairs and and get on with life. Because it isn't the end, it's a stage. And how do we see our incorporation into the body of Christ? And what difference does that make for us in how we think about formal church membership, which I'll be talking about next week? And especially, as those who symbolically share in Christ's passion, how practically that we share in his mission. Can you remember those words that Brian read from us to the church at Galatia? It's a little gem. Very often quoted, but rarely really thought about that much. A couple of years ago at the English Baptist Assembly, I heard somebody connecting this passage to baptism, as we understand this in a Baptist context. And that has really made me think a lot more myself since. 
As the speaker stood up, he invited us to imagine ourselves standing on the edge of the baptistry, something that most of us here have done and others may one day do. And as we looked at that water and prepared to go into it, those words were being spoken to us. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. And as we went down into the water and came up soaking wet, gulping in the air, and hopefully feeling exhilarated, as someone wrapped a towel around us and we believed ourselves to be clothed in Christ, what did that really mean? What did those words say to us? Because baptism is nothing less than incorporation into a radical community with values quite unlike the rest of the world. The body of Christ, the community we call the church, is not a holy huddle, but a place in which all the usual barriers and obstacles have no place. In Christ, we're told, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, so neither Canadian, nor American, nor English, nor Scottish, nor Welsh, nor Czech, nor Ghanaian, nor Zimbabwean, or Caribbean. And if I've missed your nationality out, I'm sorry. But in Christ, all gone. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free, neither chief executive nor unemployed, nor managing director nor shop worker, nor white collar nor blue collar, nor middle class nor working class, nor graduates, nor non-educated delinquents. I hate that expression, but there you go. All gone, all meaningless in Christ. In Christ there is no male and female, neither married, nor divorced, nor single, neither young, nor old, nor in between, neither Rangers, nor Celtic, or any of the rugby teams, neither tea, nor coffee, neither contemporary or traditional, neither liberal or conservative, neither Pentecostal or Quaker or anything else. And so it goes on and on and on. The diversity is affirmed. The diversity that is Hillhead Baptist Church is affirmed. But the unhelpful distinctions are gone. That is part of what baptism is about. Being baptised is or should be, for us as Baptists, a very special occasion. Mine was a very precious moment in my life. But it was much more than a right of discipleship or a right of conversion. It went beyond arguments about whether it was a sacrament or an audience. An ordinance, sorry. It was a mark of initiation into a radical community shaped by and living out the transforming nature of Christ. Somehow together we are different from what we would be otherwise. And so some final questions. How have we understood our own baptism in relationship to this idea of radical community? What are the barriers that prevent people 
from coming in to that community? How do we find the balance between the death of sin and an open-hearted, open-handed welcome for all people? Basically, as God's people, as Christ's body, what difference does it actually make? In our prayers today, we begin with ourselves and then slowly spread out to those around us, to our community, to our worlds, and indeed to the whole of creation. Let's pray together. Imminent God, closer than our own breathing, indwelling our very being with your Holy Spirit, we dare to pray for ourselves. We fear the trap of praying for our desires to be satisfied when we know that you will supply our needs. So we pause, quietly opening ourselves to you, asking that you will show us what it is we need to make us whole, to give us fulfilled lives, to enable us to grow in faithful discipleship. Communal God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, who sets us in communities for our growth and security. We pray now for those sitting nearest to us, the people on our left side and our right, those sitting immediately in front of us and those behind. We may know them very well, We may never have seen them before, but they, with us, are part of your church. So we pause, quietly asking your blessing for them. God of justice and freedom. We pray for the nation where we live, grateful for the privilege that involves and mindful of the responsibility it brings. For all those whose work enables our freedom, for all whose labours supply our plenty, for all whose energies maintain our enjoyment, we are grateful. And as we pause, we call to mind individuals and groups whose work it is to ensure our safety, security, and even prosperity, asking that you would be their guide and sustainer in all their endeavours. God of all nations, we pray for the wider world, of which we are but a tiny part, recognising our interconnectedness with all people, and indeed with the whole of creation. As the resources of the planet continue to be plundered, as it shudders and trembles with earthquakes and volcanic activity, we are reminded of the impact of humanity on the planet and its impact on us. 
as we learn of human resourcefulness in discovering new things and human destructiveness in killing or maiming. We are reminded of the responsibility that goes with the gifts of intellect and freedom. So we pause, bringing to you in the silence places and situations in need of your redemptive healing touch. Transcendent God, beyond time, beyond space, beyond our understanding or imagining, we pray for the whole of creation, the universe in all its mystery and wonder, enormity and complexity. We cannot know what to ask because we cannot understand, yet we trust that all is held in your love, that you are the source and the end of all that is was or will be. We pause, awed by the majesty of your creativity, humbled by our own seeming insignificance, stunned by your interest in the minutiae of our lives, and inspired by the stories of your word incarnate in Jesus Christ. As we pause, we rest secure in the assurance of your love, and the hope of eternity. God of glory, accept our prayers, which we offer in the name of Christ, in whom, by baptism, we are clothed. Amen.